Hi, everybody. This is David Hoffman, one of the producers of the show. While we're working on planning the future of Connecting ALS, we're rerunning some older episodes of the series that we think are still relevant and interesting for members of the ALS community. In this episode, which originally aired on June 9th, 2022, Jeremy talked to Dr. Neil Thacker, Chief Mission Officer at the ALS Association, and Melanie Lennall, the Association's Senior Vice President of Policy and Advocacy, about the role of advocacy and how it's central to the fight for improving the lives of people living with ALS. Of course, the goal is to find a cure for ALS, but until we're able to do that, we need to do what we can from an advocacy perspective to put policies in place that make it as livable as possible. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. Every year, hundreds of advocates from across the country come together to talk about ways to advance public policies that will make ALS a livable disease while accelerating the search for a cure. But advocacy doesn't just happen once a year. It's an ongoing dialogue with public policymakers at the federal and state level. Joining me to discuss ways that advocacy can help us build a world without ALS is Dr. Neil Thacker, Chief Mission Officer at the ALS Association. Neil, thanks as always for being with us on Connecting ALS. No, thank you, Jeremy. Well, now we're seeing advocacy in action right now, actually. Um, in, in recent weeks, more than 7,000 people have reached out to the FDA, imploring them to approve AMX35. I'm sure listeners are well aware of the status of that drug, but I want to get into the latest news on AMX35 uh, in a moment. But the level of engagement on this action pressing the FDA, I, I think it's been impressive. It has been. Of course, these 7,000 people writing directly to the FDA is just part of action that's been happening since 2020 when the first clinical results of the Centaur trial were published in the New England Journal. I mean, since then, we've had a petition with over 50,000 people. We've had the We Can't Wait meeting where people spoke directly to the FDA. There's just been a lot going on. Another interesting bit of advocacy, which is very unusual, is we had over three dozen um, ALS physicians uh, these are folks who work in, in our clinical centers and in others, people who really specialize in ALS care, write to the FDA saying that they reviewed the evidence and they thought the evidence was sufficient to allow them to prescribe the drug, uh, the AMX0035 drug now. And that, that letter um, was sent to the FDA just a few weeks ago. And we can share a link to that in the show notes so folks can um, read up for more information. You talk about some of the action on FDA, Neil, and, and some, some recent developments. The FDA recently informed Amelix that it was extending its review of the drug. Originally, the agency was going to make an announcement by the end of June. They're extending that time frame, pushing it out three months to sometime before September 29th. I don't want to get into trying to read tea leaves here, but what do we know about the process and where we stand today? Well, a few things have happened since the advisory committee meeting has met. Doctors uh, Sakovich and Scheffner, two leading ALS scientists, wrote a, a fairly, I think, direct se series of comments about the um, Amlex trial and some of the criticisms that came up during that advisory committee meeting and basically refuting almost all of the major concerns associated with that trial. And that, that was published in the peer-reviewed literature. 
On top of that, there was new evidence that came out of the open label extension study. That's the follow-on period after the formal trial that showed even stronger results than had additionally we originally anticipated. And so if you remember back to, I believe it was October of 2020, AMLIS had published results showing that the open label extension demonstrated a, a length of life increase of just over six months. And that's because they were only following people for a fixed period of time because it, it only, only a few months had passed since the trial had ended. And of course, it's been longer since that trial has ended. So they've been able to follow people for an even longer period of time. And they found that length of life was actually even longer than six months. It looks like it's uh, from 10 to 18 months, depending on how you look at the data. And so that's a lot longer. And that was published also in the peer-reviewed literature after the advisory committee meeting. On top of that, they not only looked at survival, but they looked at some key uh, clinical indicators and they found a delay in reductions of bad outcomes, a delay in reduction of hospitalization, and a delay in tracheostomy, uh, which is a sign of, of advancement or, pro or progress of disease. And both of those were almost by half. So a pretty big drop in those outcomes for people who continue to stay on the drug after the, the trial ended. So another new piece of peer-reviewed evidence. And so it's not uncommon for the FDA to want additional time to review new evidence after the advisory committee meeting. And that's what might be happening here. Um, it could just be that they're being thorough. Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to say. And, and we can share a link uh, again in the show notes to the statement that the association put out in, in response to the FDA um, asking for more time for its review. Sensing, uh, I can imagine the community a sense of you know, hopefulness that this new positive evidence is now going to be weighed, but also probably lingering frustration that it's been some time since we got the first results and now we're pushing it back a little bit further. So maybe uh, is it fair to say hope, but also some hope delayed? I, I certainly feel that way. I feel both mo more hopeful and more frustrated uh, that they made this announcement at the same time. And I, I do think the actions that the community has made, um, both the clinical community and people with ALS who are writing in, I think that makes a difference. I think it's important. And I think the FDA needs to hear that, that even a couple of months of delay is important to our community. It's important to us. And, you know, that's the, the upper limit of their decision time. They can always make that decision sooner. And I think we certainly would welcome a positive decision as, as quickly as possible. Couldn't possibly agree more. Neil, in other news related to drug development, Biogen recently announced the latest results of its trials of the antisense drug Tofersen. Um, what can you tell us about what we know today about that antisense drug? Well, so there was a big meeting in Europe where uh, people were presenting their very first looks at a whole bunch of different studies. And so this is happening with this, this antisense drug Tofersen. It's very exciting. As you all may remember, Tofersen uh, uses this antisense technology to temporarily turn off a gene. And in this case, for this drug, it's the SOD1 mutation. It temporarily turns off that gene, so it stops making a toxic protein, which is linked to uh, motor neuron death. They uh, were running this trial, the Valor study, and they ran the trial so everyone got to be on the drug, but not all at the same time. And so some people got to be on the drug initially, and then they had the option to extend their treatment after the trial ended, and other people got to come on to the first onto a placebo 
and then come onto the drug. And the Biogen team was able to look at the differences between those two groups. And so when they looked at the results overall, they didn't see a lot of strong effects. And those, that announcement came out some time ago. But when they started to look at the differences between the people who got the drug first and the people who got the drug later, they saw some really interesting results suggesting that if you get the drug sooner in the course of your illness, you can do better. So um, they were seeing a significant slowing in the uh, progress as measured through the ALS uh, functional rating scale. They saw a retention of uh, slow vital capacity of respiratory function, a retention of muscle strength, and also a a better quality of life uh, reported through a five-question scale. So all of that stuff is, is very promising. These results were just released today or yesterday, you know, from when we're recording this, and they haven't been peer-reviewed yet. They haven't been published. It's just the, the first cut of their analysis. And so there, there's certainly more to come here, but this is, this is definitely good news, uh, not just for this particular drug, but for the class of antisense technology, which could, in theory, be applied to lots of different ALS genes. Yeah, a lot of um, a lot of excitement around antisense just in, in my time uh, here in the community, and of course, Neil, accelerating approval and access to treatments is a key part of making ALS livable and ultimately finding ways to cure the disease. You know, it strikes me that you know we started this conversation talking about advocacy. Well, advocates do play a key role in that process, pressing for legislation like the Act for ALS, pressing for increased federal spending on research, but pulling back and thinking about what it takes to make ALS livable, what role do you see advocates playing? Well, that, that's a great question. We're gonna be talking about that our, at our uh, advocacy conference, and I really hope everyone can tune and watch it. It's, a, it's gonna be online. You know, the whole concept of making ALS livable is not just about finding cures, that's the ultimate goal to help cure the disease, but it's also a specific strategy to transform the experience of people living with ALS today, to make fast and dramatic improvements in their length of life, fast and dramatic improvements in quality of life. So that requires not only more resources from our federal government for people with ALS, for their care, for science, but it also requires a little bit of focusing and targeting. And so we need to tell the FDA, not only do we need them to approve drugs and to use the regulatory authority and flexibility that they have, but that speed is really important. So they need to be fast. And uh, if there's a judgment call to make, as there there is with this Amalix drug, that they need to have the authority to exercise that judgment. And if they are a little too aggressive in approving drugs for ALS and things don't turn out the way that we expect that they would, that they have the ability to take a drug off the market that's not effective and keep the clinical space clear and the signals clean and so we can run clinical trials quickly. It also means we need to spend a lot more money in ALS research and our advocacy community has been incredibly successful in increasing ALS research in the DOD and NIH and we're now uh, working on research programs at the FDA And that's all really important, but it's not just about all kinds of research in general. It has to be about research that's gonna result in impact on people quickly. That level of focus needs to be there. And then of course, advocacy is really important, making sure people can get 
the benefits uh, that they can to cover their, their costs of their care and cover their insurance. The association and other ALS advocates played a huge role in helping uh, the VA to recognize ALS as a service-connected disease many years ago. A couple of years ago, we were able to uh, finally eliminate the waiting period to get Social Security disability uh, benefits with an ALS diagnosis. And those are important, and we need to keep working on that benefits front as well. I think there's more work to be done to make sure that assistive technology is accessible and affordable, that home care is affordable, that the benefits we've been seeing from um, telehealth and the increased access to care that we've had because of temporary waivers to the law under COVID um, remain even after COVID uh, gets under control and people can go to the doctor. These are all very fundamental, important issues. And the other role that advocates play in their personal interactions with lawmakers is just to remind people what it's like to live with ALS. And if you think about it, so much of our healthcare process is just a hassle. Like if you want to get a medication, sometimes you have to talk to your doctor and then you have to talk to your pharmacist and then they tell you there's a problem with the insurance. And then you go back to the doctor and everybody's pointing fingers to each other. And sometimes the only way to resolve that is to just go to the pharmacy and wait in line and get them to tell you in person what's going on. And that's, that's just annoying. It's a hassle. Every American family deals with that at, at some point in the year. But if you have ALS, if you have a mobility challenge, if you have a communication challenge, uh, those things become even, even harder. And then if you think about you're managing complex care across multiple providers, and sometimes uh, you have a, a person you work with closely, and then you're dealing with someone who may even be in another state who's, who's providing expert guidance, and then you have all their specialists, it's really complicated. And our government needs to keep that in mind when they design policies to control costs. Oftentimes we control costs by creating administrative burdens and those administrative burdens can play an extra heavy burden on, on people with ALS. So we need to stop that. And um, that's part of why we have our advocacy conference every year. I've, I've had a sneak peek at, at some of the topics that will be discussed there. Very much looking forward to sitting in on some of those conversations and learning about the, the steps forward to create a better world for people living with ALS and ultimately a world without ALS. Uh, Dr. Neil Thacker, thanks as always for your time this week. Thank you, Jeremy. Appreciate it. My guest this week is Melanie Lennall, the ALS Association's Senior Vice President of Policy and Advocacy and the newest member of the ALS Advocacy Team. Well, Melanie, thank you so much for being with us this week here on Connecting ALS. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's great to hear. I'm going to jump right in in a moment. But before we do, listeners may not know who you are. So can you just take a moment, introduce yourself, and tell us a little bit about how you got into advocacy? Thank you for that opportunity. So I got into advocacy well over a decade ago. I didn't start in advocacy, though. I started as a television news reporter and worked in many markets all over the country. What led me to advocacy is the desire not just to talk about problems, but to actually transition my career in a way that I would be working to solve these problems. For me, that meant going into advocacy work, 
one of the things that we know about advocacy is advocacy and public policy really go hand in hand. And when we are able to move the needle in a public policy realm, it can really create transformational change for whoever or whatever we are advocating on behalf of. And for me, I found this career change to be incredibly fulfilling. Well, and advocating now on behalf of uh, people living with ALS and all of those fighting to make ALS livable and ultimately find treatments and a cure. With that in mind, Melanie, can you give listeners a bit of an update? We, we talked about the public policy priorities at the beginning of the year. We're roughly halfway through the year. We're approaching the advocacy conference. We share a link in the notes for folks to um, sign up and register for that. But where do things stand on some of those key public policy priorities that you are helping lead the fight to achieve? Good question. So we are absolutely a work in progress right now. We are building the infrastructure for our team, not just in our home office, but all over the country. Um, We have been very good in the past and will continue to be good in the future on securing funding for research, for development, for cures, for therapies, for treatments. But one of the things that we do anticipate taking on that we've started taking on right now, but will be augmented significantly in the future is how to help patients and their families right now. Of course, the goal is to find a cure for ALS, but until we're able to do that, we need to do what we can from an advocacy perspective to put policies in place that make it as livable as possible. So that means advocating for policies that lower costs for patients across the board, whether it's for the prescription medications, whether it is for the assistive technology that we know patients need, making home care especially much more accessible to people so that they have the ability to stay in their homes, and also providing more support generally for family members. One of the things we know about ALS is this is a disease that doesn't just affect patients. It dramatically and without question changes the life of every individual in a patient's family. And we have to do more from a public policy perspective, not just to recognize that that is a tremendous struggle, but to support those family members during the struggle and in the aftermath of that struggle. You mentioned uh, drug development, and you know, obviously, the association has been very active in working with the FDA to try and get the drug approval process accelerated. Uh, we've seen over six thousand people send letters to or emails to the FDA, imploring them to approve AMX thirty-five, one of those emerging drugs. What have you seen in your time in this fight from? ALS advocates, what's your take on the the state of the folks out in the grassroots? Good question. So I will say in comparison to other organizations where I've been involved in advocacy, ALS patients and their families are uniquely involved at a very high level. 
frankly, it's not that surprising because we're talking about a disease that is an, a rare disease. It is a disease that frankly has to be the cruelest or one of the cruelest diseases out there. It is a disease where we know there is no cure. There really aren't many treatment options for patients at this time. So it makes sense that patients and their families would be willing to do anything and everything just to try and find a cure, find treatments that might extend lives, find therapies that might improve the quality of life for an individual facing ALS. But one of the things that absolutely has been gratifying working in the short time that I've been with the association is how well informed patients and their families are and how willing they are to work with us to do whatever it takes. We had an opportunity several weeks ago to talk to Marianne Kuhn up in, uh, for the ALS Association up in Minnesota about that tremendous uh, support, the spending bill and um, a caregiver support bill that was passed in that state. Is that something that you anticipate we'll start seeing more of is work in state houses and governor's mansions to get public policies passed at the state level? Absolutely. That is going to be one of our top priorities going forward. One of the things we talked about earlier is the need to make ALS more livable for patients and their families while we are still working to find a cure. And one of the ways to do that is by funding more of the care services that our patients need. And one way that public policy officials can ensure that patients, their own constituents, might I add, have what they need is to provide state funding for these care services. And it's not just a matter of doing the right thing to help their own constituents who happen to have ALS, but it also, at the end of the day, we know saves the state money because someone has to pay for this care. And if the state makes the investment up front, we know that down the road, the monetary cost to the state actually ends up being less. So there's certainly an argument to be made that, frankly, this is just good public policy, but it's also a fiscal argument of being responsible. I mentioned the advocacy conference, uh, which is folks can register for, and we'll share a link in the show notes. A lot of returning advocates we expect to see in that virtual forum, a lot of maybe first-time advocates. Melanie, as someone who's been doing this for a long time, as someone who, you know, before that was in television news, what advice would you give for someone who's maybe a little bit intimidated by a meeting member of Congress, maybe a little intimidated of how do I explain this to somebody that may, I don't know what they know. Like, you know, advocating can be kind of scary if you haven't done it before. What advice do you have for those folks? So the first thing I will say is when I first started doing this work, I was absolutely intimidated. I was so scared the first time I met a member of Congress for a meeting on the Hill. One of the things that helped me sort of get over that fear, if you will, to the extent that I could, having never had a meeting with, with a member of Congress before, is recognizing that A, 
everyone who is public policy official is a person. Mm -hmm. They have emotions and they feel. The second thing that I'll say is for people who are on the Hill, are in state houses, are in local government, these are your elected officials. They are in those positions because you gave them the opportunity to be there and you voted, we hope, for you for you to make that decision. So one of the things that also helped me is recognizing that everyone in these seats is accountable to their constituents and remembering that and talking to folks as if they are not necessarily people who are to be placed on a pedestal because of their role, they're real people. So when it comes to communicating with public policy officials, one of the things that I have found to be helpful is a framework, so to speak, of head, heart, and hand. Hmm. So what I mean by that is you have a message that you want to convey to someone who you're meeting with who happens to represent you. So thinking about why you're there, telling them why you're there, then using your heart to explain why you're there matters so much to you and why the person you're speaking with, this should matter to them as well. And then the hand is, what is your ask? What are you asking this public policy official to do? Unfortunately, none of these folks really have a ton of time. Usually they're in back-to-back meetings constantly. So there is an element of brevity that needs to be considered. So that's why I always talk about to folks before they go in and advocate to think head, heart, hand before you go in and think about what you're going to say. The shorter, the more clear you convey your messages, the more memorable you will be, and the more likely the person you're speaking with is to take action. Well, the head, the head, the heart, and the hand, I'm going to fold that into my everyday life is great advice. Uh, and in the spirit of brevity and knowing that you have uh, many, many things on your plate, uh, we'll leave it at that. Melanie, thanks so much for being with us this week. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I want to thank my guests this week, Dr. Neil Thacker and Melanie Lennall. As a reminder, it's not too late to sign up for the ALS Association's Advocacy Conference or to tell the FDA to approve AMX35 as soon as possible. You can find links to both of those actions in the show notes. If you like this episode, share it with a friend. And while you're at it, please find time to rate and review Connecting ALS. It's a great way for us to find even more listeners. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Supervised by David Hoffman. That's going to do it this week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon.